Greetings, friends. We want to welcome you again to the podcast, Church is Changing. I'm Paul Nixon, and I'm here with my friend, Elaine Heath. And Elaine, it's so good to have you with us today. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. You have been a collaborator and a person who has inspired me along the years because you always seem to be involved in something creative and interesting. And I keep thinking she's going to run out of things to, and, and you and you never do. You always seem to emerge <laughs> with a new something going on. So I really look forward to this conversation. Uh, I do too. It'll be fun. And you've been a great support and friend to me over the years too. Now, over the years, you taught for years at Perkins School of Theology. You were a, a primary creator of Missional Wisdom Foundation. You were the dean of Duke Divinity School. You've created Neighborhood Seminary, all these adventures. But you have, a, you have another adventure that has been unfolding in the last few years. What is it? Tell us about what's going on at the farm. Okay. Well, Spring Forest is the name of our farm and forest. And we bought this property six and a half years ago when we moved to North Carolina so I could take up the role of Dean of Duke Divinity School. And now the way it's configured, we have another couple owns the farm side of the property. My husband and I own the forest side of the property. And we have an intentional community here. It's a new monastic community. I was recently appointed by the Bishop of the North Carolina Conference to serve as the quarter-time elder to this community with the full knowledge and blessing that this is a new monastic community. And my actual title here is Abbas. So I lead the administrative and spiritual formation of this community. We have a, a farm and we have a whole range of ministries that are emerging, especially around supporting refugees in their resettlement and taking good care of the earth. Our farm is a regenerative farm. So those two things work together very well. And we collaborate with other churches, with nonprofits, with people that can't stand church, don't want anything to do with religion. But here they found a community. So this place, the Spring Forest Farm, was there a history here before you came along related to ministry or to any kind of neo-monastic community? Or that's a new thing that's happening in this space? Yes, this is a new thing. The farm side of the property was owned by a, a man who's a, a soil scientist and that side of the property is a little over nine acres. And he was known throughout the Triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, for his ability to grow salad greens year-round, especially in the heat of the summer. That's not easy to do, but he was really good with his high tunnels and everything like that. So that's what the farm was used for before we, we bought it. And now we have everything going on that, that we're doing here. So, And you call this enterprise a pharmastery yes is did you coin that one or was there a pharmastery out there somewhere before this i never heard that word before i just was trying to <laughs> combine farming with monastery and it that's what came out so <laughs> i love it i love it and so to be a part of this community do i live on the farm or in the forest or do i live near or can i be in scotland how, do, how what how is belonging how does it happen here all of the above. So there are two houses on the property. There's a farmhouse on the farm, obviously, and then there's a house here in the forest. My husband and I live in the forest house. A young family lives in the farmhouse. Between the two houses, we have 
room for eight people at a time to come and stay for overnight retreats and learning experiences. We also have camping space outdoors for primitive camping. So if we're going to have an event and more people want to come and pitch a tent, we have capacity for that. So so there's a residential community, and we, we have a steady flow through of visitors who come to learn from what we're doing. Then we also have people who live nearby geographically who are a part of our community. And this would include people who volunteer on the farm, uh, staff who work on the farm, curious bystanders who come and see what's happening, people who subscribe to our CSA, people who are a part of our English as a Second Language program and other refugee support. And then we also have an online presence. We have morning and evening prayer, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern time. And the community that shows up for prayer uh, reaches from Texas to London, England. And we have a monthly spirituality group that draws from a multi-state area. And we also have just started an oblate program. This is just a few weeks ago. Over the span of two weeks, I heard from five different people who contacted me independently of each other, that most of them don't live close by. And they said, I would like to become an oblate to Spring Forest. Is there a way that I can do that? So when I noticed these people were all asking me the same question at the same time, I said, well, let's convene a meeting and figure out what that can look like. So we now have eight oblates. And that's a meeting that happens once a month, and then there will be a pilgrimage once a year, and probably some other things will develop with that group. But that group is mostly online, but some of the people are a little bit closer, and I anticipate that group will grow into a broader geographic area. So for those that may not be quite so familiar with monastic tradition, when you use the term oblate, what, what are you meaning? Well, oblates are historically, these are people who will affiliate with a local monastic community. You find these, especially among Benedictines and Franciscans, there are pathways to do this, where those persons want to follow that rule of life, that set of spiritual practices that is part of that community's tradition, and they want to have a relationship with that community. They want to come on a regular basis, maybe once a year, maybe once a month. It depends on how far away they are. And they want to make a contribution to the community as well as receive nurture and support from the community. So they're kind of, I guess, a a secular way we could call it is friends of the community who've made a commitment to support the the goals and the, the, you know, the values of that organization. So the new Oblate group that is forming here, they are following our rule of life, that common set of spiritual practices, and then We have monthly conversations to talk about living into that rule, how it's going, kind of a, I always think of these things like spiritual AA groups, you know, we're, you know, showing up to each other and sharing our our lives together so that we can show up as our best selves as often as possible in the world. So they wanted to follow that rule of life in their own setting, in their own homes, their workplaces, their neighborhoods, and then an annual pilgrimage where people gather together and and we we kind of think of it as we're thinking toward that we're thinking well this will be celebratory it'll be a festival and we're going to have fun with music prayers and all kinds of good food and this is what we're thinking about and so you're, you're envisioning this pilgrimage of people coming to spring forest in this case yes yes okay. uh-huh. kind of like a big homecoming and more yes 
One of the things that strikes me is you've been describing this, ranging from your oblates to your folks that may be camping for a weekend to people who camp often for a weekend to people that come for retreats, is it seems like there are a lot of, I don't know if they're concentric circles of community, but they're sort of overlapping circles. It's not just yes. like one li- one membership list. It's, right. it, there's different ways to connect or to or to intersect, maybe the, mm-hmm. would be the word, with, with community here. Yes, that's the way it works. And we have, we just, we started it with the idea that this is to become a new monastic community. And we had some idea of the things we were called to do. But part of our discernment practice that keeps us agile and evolving is that we try to notice what's happening and name it and go with it. So we noticed who was coming, and it was people from a very broad array of religious backgrounds, you know, different Christian denominations, but also other religions and no religion and anti-religion. These different people were finding their way here to join in with the sweet potato harvest or to teach an ESL class or to develop an herb garden, a medicinal herb garden, or they wanted to come and have a place where they could talk about their journey with God. In some cases, these are people who are de-churched. They can't take traditional church anymore or institutional church. They can't take it anymore. In other cases, there are people who are members of one church or another, and they have some commitments there. But this is a place at Spring Forest where they can actually work in the soil and they can take food to the food bank or they can sit with someone and help them learn how to read. And so so what we've done as we've noticed who's coming is we've structured our times for when we do things so that it's not on Sunday morning. We, we typically don't do anything on Sundays because we need to rest for one thing, but also that way persons who are coming from that have a commitment in a church somewhere, we don't want their pastors or them to think we're trying to poach or, you know, something like that. So we're trying to make the space and the time and the structures available so that the people who are called to be here can be here. Well, the the reason that that is, that's interesting to me for a lot of reasons, but maybe the reason it really intrigues me is because I hear quite a few conversations these days in my work about how should we be rethinking church membership? And I had a conversation yesterday with a, a congregational church where it's where the idea of the covenant between members, sort of the, the agreed upon principles of their community, is very, very important. And your covenant could in, entail um, quite a bit of um, creedal or doctrinal stuff, or very little of that, or it could be both. You could have two, you could have multiple kinds of covenant depending on the, the nature of the relationship. And it seems to me that at Spring Forest, as you're describing it, there could be a lot of different kinds of relationship defined explicitly or more implicitly by sort of different understandings of what we bring and of how we hold each other in loving accountability. Yeah, this is interesting about membership because I could really go down a rabbit trail with that one, but I won't. <laughs> but we are not incorporated as a church yet because we're still we're pioneering what monasticism can look like for United Methodists right now. That's what we're doing. And so there's no there's no there's nothing to draw from there from our own Methodist tradition as far as structures for polity and things like that. 
we are a new faith community in the North Carolina conference. And the people who are in those conversations consider us sort of a rural, fresh expression. We do have a lot of support and blessing from the conference, which is great. But what I've been thinking lately, two things, our rule of life has, has only four words in it, prayer, work, table, and neighbor. Okay. Those are not attached to doctrines. They're, they're not attached to doctrines. Those are clear, but they're also broad enough that a person who is in another religion or a person from a different denomination or a person who's kind of uh, allergic to institutional religion could join in and, and say, yeah, that's that's the way I want to live. I want to be intentional about these four practices in my life. So that makes it possible for us to have this community of practice with all these overlapping circles and intersecting circles without having to try to make everyone conform to the same doctrinal commitments. That's one thing. The other thing is that I've been thinking about how these people came toward me wanting to become oblates. And that came from the people. Like I didn't cook that up. They came to me with this sense of longing, which we're now taking and creating something coming out of their longing, which I believe is a holy longing. And what if we were to conceive of church membership more along the lines of, of a monastic community where there, you have oblates who have not taken vows. They've just indicated Traditionally, oblates are not vowed members of a community. They're they're committed, but they they haven't taken vows, right? And then persons who want to go further into the concentric circle would become novices. And in traditional monastic communities, there is a period of time that can be fairly short, or it can be up to ten years or more before the community and the person determine, yes, this is my, going to be my life for the rest of my life, and I'm going to take those vows. So, you know, you could create something like that, during which time a person and the community really get to know each other, and uh, the person has a chance to experience life together with everybody and go through conflict together, which is inevitable when there are people, you know, together for very long. And then the, the vowed community would be the ones who, who said, this is my life for the rest of my life, I'm all in, and unless something very drastic that I can't foresee might happen. I, this is my this is my intention to live with this community and be committed to it for the rest of my life. So that would be. So I'm wondering if there's if we might learn something from that history that could be helpful to us, where joining a community is really about laying your life down for the community, rather than oh I want to join that church so that it might be socially advantageous to me to say I'm a member of this church or that church. Over many years, my experience of church membership in some parts of the country in particular has been that it's meaningless, that people, you know, at the end of the sermon, the pastor says, does anybody want to join the church? Come on down. And it, it always reminded me of let's make a deal. You know, you don't know if you're going to get a goat behind that door or somebody's going to ask you to tithe or, you know, what the deal is. <laughs> and you find out later what you were committing to, and you, you had no knowledge of that in advance. So I think there's something we can learn from the monastic tradition. I, I'm still pondering getting a goat behind the door when I joined the church. <laughs> Your oblates, are all of them Christian identity, or are they a mix? They're all Christian identity at this time. Okay. I'm just, it, it, that was just a point of curiosity. They wouldn't necessarily have to be, it sounds like, though. They could be people that were very much spiritual seekers or coming out of another um, tradition where they found a lot of meaning and still be an oblate with this mm -hmm. with with Spring Forest. 
I think so. I don't see why not. And I understand because you're not a quote unquote church in the way that it's defined in the discipline in and in an official relationship as a congregation of the annual conference where you find yourself. But all that set aside, it sure sounds like church to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best this is the best experience of church of my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's so wonderful. Well, to that point, it sounds like you, you're a lifelong learner. You've been and you've been studying monastic Christianity for a long time, and then practicing that in a variety of ways over the years. But this just feels like all the pieces sort of coming together on this one. That it feels like a really important part of your journey as a leader. Yeah, yeah, it feels that way to me too, Paul. I, you know, my first book that I wrote where I was casting a vision for things like this was the Mystic Way of Evangelism. And there are five major themes in that book. And it feels like the theology and the vision of that book is full flower now. It's like it's really coming into full fruition and even beyond uh, what I imagined when I wrote that book. It's it's even there's more depth and possibility here. So because I'm a retired elder, even though I'm I've come back under appointment, I'm appointed quarter time. I asked to be appointed for no salary because, you know, I have social security and, you know, I've, I wanted to help to develop this model of ministry that that's bivocational or co-vocational for any of the clergy types. And then it would, you know, the, we pay our farm workers wages and things like that, a living wage. But they said, they said our system doesn't allow for an elder to be appointed without being paid. So our district superintendent said, well, can, can they just pay you a hundred dollars a month and you could just put it back in the plate and I said, okay, but we don't have a plate. We have a giving button on our website. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what's happening here. But it's this freedom, the freedom that I have from being retired from the United Methodist Church, freedom from being retired from academia. It gives me maximum elbow room sort of emotionally and spiritually and practically to experiment, to try things, to see what emerges. It gives me a lot of freedom for speaking out and just following conviction. So, yeah. I would imagine a lot of people will be watching and learning from, from this whole journey and experience. I, and I think you're aware of that. But what are you learning on this journey? I mean, I would presume that you're, you're six years into the property and, and, and in terms of developing this particular ministry, about maybe two or three years in? Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Well, during that time, what what is maybe clearer? What are you what are you learning that, that that feels important on this journey? Well, learning a lot of things. I didn't anticipate how much we would be engaged with the Muslim community. Like I just didn't anticipate that. But we're very engaged because of our support of refugees and their resettlement. And right now, most of the refugees who were resettled in the Durham area for the last couple of three years have been from the Middle East. So these are mostly Muslim, not entirely. So that's been really interesting. And I mentioned this earlier about discernment practices, but one of the things that we do in our community is we regularly have conversations where we say, okay, what are we noticing about who is coming toward us? What's happening? What are we noticing? And then we assume that Christ is coming toward us in whoever is coming toward us. And we try to try to say yes 
as much as we can to who and what are coming toward us. And so Muslims have come toward us through the refugee work. So this has opened up all kinds of doors for possible ministries. Uh, One of my dearest friends here now is a woman named Shema, who's from Afghanistan. She's a Muslim woman. And she was a chef for many years. She came to the U.S. 30 years ago. She works now for World Relief as a translator. And she's just a real soul sister. So we together provide pastoral care to a lot of refugees. And she's just a really wonderful human being. So living and moving in this inter, not only interfaith space, but interspirituality space, I'm learning to navigate that in a way that is really life-giving and beautiful. I've also had to learn farming because <laughs> I've never farmed before. So I've learned all about taking care of the sheep and goats, and I've learned a lot about soil care and crop care and pest management and rotating crops and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> In terms of your neighbors, the, the people who were, were coming toward you and you chose to see Christ in them, and then as, as they got a little closer, you realized, wait a second, these are, these are largely refugees and many of them are Muslim. That is a, that, that's a beautiful story, but it, it, it reminds us that in some ways we don't pick our neighbors, we don't pick our community, and churches are planted in neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, we, we as human beings are planted in, in larger neighborhoods and, and we, and we dance in the rhythms with the friends and neighbors that emerge around us. Mm -hmm. And in your case, we're, we're, we're folks largely from other places and who come from another faith tradition, but it, it seems like the design of it wasn't to be in fellowship with Muslims, it's just these are the neighbors that God gave you. Yes, and the principals of the community said, "Well, hey, come along." <laughs> yeah, and the way the way we got started with that is that the pastor who planted the Spring Forest community with me and with our team is from Kenya. His name is Francis Kenua, and he had been my student years ago at Perkins and was a part of our missional wisdom experiments and all those things. So. Francis and I had a pretty solid history of supporting refugees in their resettlement. Plus, Francis speaks Swahili. And, you know, so so we reached out to World Relief. We reached out to Church World Service right after we started Spring Forest as a new faith community to tell them we have done refugee resettlement support in the past. We'd like to do that again here. How can we help? And we were kind of thinking there would be Swahili speakers, but we've had no Swahili speakers. We've had... (laughs) You know, Dari, Pashti, Arabic, and and uh, and then a language from Central Africa Republic that it's very difficult to find anyone that translates. So that's how we got started. And so I think of when God calls Moses, and Moses is supposed to go and lead this these people out of Egypt, and Moses feels so inadequate, and and then God says, "Well, what's in your hand?" And this has been a guiding principle for me for decades about ministry. You start with what's in your hand. Well, what do you have? Well, you know, we had Francis who speaks Swahili and we had this set of experiences that we could draw from and, uh, you know, planting experiences together we could draw from. You know, we have some land here. We have a barn. We have space. How can we use what's in our hand? And then you go with that and see what emerges next. What is emerging here is a very fresh, and it strikes me, a very faithful model of church on so many different levels and fronts. I mean, it's just, it is such a rich model to look at. And even for 
people who don't have a farm and a forest and really a formalized monastic community emerging, there are just so many parables here of how church can happen. This is what I love about this Mm -hmm. project. So many. But, you know, this podcast is, is titled Church is Changing. Where do you think we're going? We're obviously moving beyond the era of Sunday school at nine, worship at ten thirty, with cookies at you know before you go to lunch, you know, with the confirmation. Cl- I mean, we're moving beyond that paradigm that was a pretty powerful paradigm that lasted for a couple, two or three generations. Before that, there were others. But where where do you feel like church is going these days? It's going in several directions. Some of them are healthy and some of them are unhealthy. We're going to see more and more emergence of experimental communities like Spring Forest. And by experimental, maybe experiential would be a good word to use. Uh, Communities Mm -hmm. of practice. We're going to see the, the emergence of more communities of practice that are very, very culturally specific. So very contextual. And they are going to happen around all kinds of interesting neighborhoods and locations and settings, really emerging from the vision of the people. And people will need leaders who call forth the vision, sort of whisper the gifts out of the people and then keep fanning those flames and all that. I'm mixing some metaphors here. but So that's going to happen. And I think that's really healthy. Uh, A lot of those won't last very long, but every one of those is important because they're helping us to evolve into the future faithfully following Christ. So those are all important, and we'll learn things from all those. Then there's another way where I see church going, and that would be the inherited church that has enough life in it yet to to survive, because they still are worshiping Jesus, they are still interested in what God is doing in the world. And so for those churches— Maybe they have some resources in the in like a church building and some land or some you know some physical resources, some capital resources. And I see those, but they but they're willing to become anchors for these really creative things out in the world, really become anchors. A great example of that in my mind is Central UMC in Asheville, North Carolina. Central is anchoring some wonderful communities of faith around the city that are in very contextual situations uh, that I, I, I really love what they're doing. There will also be a move toward the good old days. We have to go back to the good old days, and this, this is like the church of sentimentality, where people really double down on we're not going to change, we're going to stay the same, and this this is going to happen in rural settings and in suburban settings and in the city. Those churches will choke the lives out of themselves before too long because you can't stay alive as a church if you're not growing spiritually and if you're not passing the torch, you know, the faith on to others and so on. So that will happen. And then I also foresee, especially in these chaotic times in which we live, where there's fear and uncertainty about because of climate change, because of war, because of extreme political polarization, all these things, there will be a rise in fundamentalism, and there will be a rise in fundamentalist churches that offer people a sense of security because there's a rigid framework in which to place their lives. So I, we're going to see all of those things happening. As for me and my household, <laughs> as the Bible says, I want to go where where God is 
actively doing new things and people are coming into a new experience of God. That's where I want to be. If some folks were interested in learning more, and I don't mean reading something on the internet, but coming and experiencing and getting the rhythm of Spring Forest, maybe even to discover an aha within their own soul about how church might could take root in a very authentic and faithful way in another setting. Mm-hmm. How would how would you get linked with Spring Forest to to spend some time to be mentored or just to be nurtured or to just spend some time? Sure. Uh, they can email us. They can go onto our website and they can write to us there. Our email address for the for the church is office at springforest.org. And they can send an inquiry. And we have a person named PJ who is our pastor of administration. We just gave her that new name the other day. She was running our CSA and now she's doing general administration for us. She has a an MDiv from Duke Divinity School and just a really fine administrative person. So she'll make sure that that message gets to me or to whoever it needs to go to, and we can figure out what what comes next. Elaine, it's such a pleasure to catch up with you and to be able to share a little bit about what's happening at Spring Forest with the listeners to this podcast. It's not just like you're on to something here. You're on to several somethings. (laughs) And um, I do have a sense that God is really working in a beautiful way to not only through your community where you need to go, but for the larger Christian community, I think we need to keep an eye on Spring Forest and maybe visit. That'd be great, Paul. Thank you. And I need to get down there. I have I have kinfolk in North Carolina. I need to get down and get on the land one of these days. You definitely do. I'll introduce you to the goats. There we go. Yeah, I'll <laughs> um and, and that might be what I need to do if I stay on the land. I need to be a goat care person for a day or two. (laughs) Sure. Friends, this is the Church's Changing Podcast. I'm here with Elaine Heath, who is the abbess of the Spring Forest community in North Carolina. And Elaine, what community, actual town, are are you near? We are just outside of Hillsboro. We are about 20 minutes from Durham, 20 minutes from Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. So close close to Duke in in that part of the world. Friends, we look forward to to getting your response and your inquiries. And I know that the folks at Spring Forest would love to hear from you as well. We appreciate that that you listen with each of these podcasts. And we really do believe that you're not just listening for your entertainment, but that God is working in your hearts to create the next new things in the unfolding of God's reign in the world. Thanks. Church is Changing is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.